0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in History. My name is Lane Davis, and today my guest is Dr. Michael Ayers Trotty. He is professor of history at Ithaca College and the author of a new book, The End of Public Execution Race, Religion, and Punishment in the American South, published in 2022 by the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So, Dr. Trotty, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much. I
0: appreciate the opportunity of having a chat.
1: Well, let's start with kind of the big picture of your book to orient our listeners. Uh, tell us what your book is about and what led you to to write it now.
0: Great. Um, so the writing it now is a little bit longer story. I'll try to I'll try to shorten it. Um, the nuts and bolts of the book. Let me just say, um, is about putting legal executions in the appropriate spot in our understanding of race and violence and religion in the South in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And uh, by that, I mean, uh, we have generally misplaced public execution. Um, And just so the listeners know, I'm not talking about lynching when I say public execution. That's often the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, This is legal execution. So this is somebody who went through the courtroom process, was condemned by the state, and the execution process back in the late 19th century would be by hanging. And until the late uh, part of the 19th century, throughout the South, it would be a public execution. So it would be out in a field uh, where maybe thousands of people um, would uh, be there watching it. Uh, men, women, sometimes children um, watching as well. Uh, and so we've tended to uh, see this as horrendous, which of course there are horrendous elements to it. Um, and in that way, uh, understand it to be something very much like lynchings. It is an added horror for those um, and, and a, a shameful thing for those who are condemned, say, Uh, and that it is a white-dominated in the South sort of a thing to put the underclass, whether it's poor whites or especially African-American criminals, in their place and to teach a lesson to other would-be criminals. Look at what happens to you uh, if uh, you betray the laws. Uh, And so that's the way the field has tended to see it as a sort of a legal... um, sort of uh, affair that was something like uh, the illegal, the extra legal lynchings. And that's what I went into it thinking. And so this uh, project really changed on me in dramatic fashion uh, more than once as I went through the process of writing it. Uh, I started out uh, writing it because of how my last book ended. So that's the sort of origin story. Um, My first book was called The Body in the Reservoirs about murder and sensationalism in the South. It's really a study of the press and narrative and the ways in which uh, crime narratives changed over time in the press and in the public. Uh, What stories were most convincing to people, most interesting to people when there was a crime sensation, um, an event that grabbed the public's attention? The end of those stories was often the gallows uh, where these people were were hanged. And so the last chapter that I wrote in that book opened up to me the fact that these are really interesting, weird, multi-sided moments at the scaffold and that the historical scholarship did not talk about them much. Um, So if you look at the history of capital punishment, Most of the books that you would first find on the shelves have to do more with capital punishment in New York and New England um, than uh, in the South, which doesn't make sense. Other than the fact that many scholars focus on major urban areas and so forth, rather than focusing on the South, it doesn't make sense because the South has dominated America's capital punishment forever. Um, even in the late antebellum period, disproportionate to its population, it was executing more people than anybody else. And to this day, I mean, right now, most executions in the South that we still have are in the South. Most executions in the nation are in the South. Um, And so it was clear to me this is an issue that was worthy of further investigation, and so I started investigating. But I started investigating with all of those assumptions that this is, in essence, looking at a legal form of something close to lynching and what i discovered was that it was not and so in the first few years of this project i had to not just jigger with <laughs> what i was going to argue i had to completely reformulate what it was that i was studying and i had no understanding at first that i was going to be looking at religion as much as i was for instance, Um, and I came to an understanding there. So what is a public execution? Well, it's as much a camp meeting on the gallows as it is uh, a forceful articulation of state power over the underclass. So the state may want this to be a chastising moment that teaches society the costs of crime, but in the wake of the Civil War, One of the fastest changes that happens in Southern life is African-Americans moving to their own churches. And what that means is the African-Americans on the scaffold are gonna have their ministers who are now black men. And you have a black man, 80 plus percent of all of the executions in the South are of black people in the late 19th century. A black man confessing his sins which may include this crime. Sometimes they say, I committed, I was drink, I was, you've got to stay away from alcohol. I can't believe that I did this, I'm so ashamed. Sometimes they deny the crime, but they say they're a sinner anyway, because we're all sinners. Um, and they confess their sins. And then you have a minister leading a thousand people, white and black, in the crowd around the gallows in hymns, in prayers. And almost all of the examples that I was able to find out of 1,300 newspaper examples that form the basis of this book um, have the um, the African American man saying something on the order of "I'll see you all in heaven." So instead of being something like a lynching, this was something more like um, a contested ground of state power, plus very public articulations of African-American authority, religious authority, devotion, um, challenging the white state authority in these moments, and laying claim to God's grace in public, in the era of Jim Crow, segregation and lynching. So, these were really interesting moments, and that's the heart of what the book is investigating: um, this sort of tension and how it changes over time.
1: Mm. I, I want to follow up on this uh, <clears throat> this th- this role of religion. Uh, you have a quote on on page thirty one. Where you say uh, the religion at the gallows was no liberation theology, no religious radicalism, no call for revolution. Yet the egalitarianism of religion meant that the hymns, prayers, confessions, professions of faith, and Bible passages were a challenge to white supremacy nonetheless. Talk a bit more about how African-American religion really challenged the dominant white supremacist ideologies and structures uh, of that time. That's such a, a, cre- a, a critical um, uh, component of your book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you for that. Um, I think where I'll start is just a little bit of a backdrop to that. And please reorient me if um, I go too far astray. Um, but um, I just think it's fundamentally important for us as historians and as people um, looking back and trying to understand the past uh, to understand how important churches were in the communities of African Americans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We understand that the civil rights movement came out of churches, you know, that it's not a mistake. It's not an accident that Jesse Jackson and Martin Luther King and so many others um, uh, were in fact ministers who were leading the civil rights m- movement. Um, that's something that makes sense because these were by far the largest buildings in African-American communities. It's a public investment that the community makes. It's a community center. It's a um, a source of pride, it's a source of support. Um, These these spaces mattered, um, and religion mattered uh, to these communities. And in, in that light, you know, we today in 2022 have so many interesting and odd and ideas about the place of religion and politics, say, or um, in American life or thinking about right and left and religion and and so forth. But um, it's just important to draw attention to the ways in which for a people who were enslaved and then freed and who are desperately poor, facing violence uh, and prejudice in all kinds of ways, Um, that there are whole sets of ideas in Christianity and in Jesus's teachings and the teachings of the disciples in the New Testament and so forth, that resonate like crazy in these communities in ways that are really important. Um, you know, that the, I, 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 hesitate to try to start naming them because there, there are so many. And, um, I, I, certainly go into some of the, uh, sorts of, uh, both Bible verses and hymns that are, um, that are referenced in the moments at the executions, but, um, the, the central value of, um, of love, of, uh, it being grace and not who you are or what you've done that will lead you to heaven, that everyone has a chance to get to heaven, that if anything, the poor might have a better chance than the rich to get to heaven. All of these things and the history of abuse, Jesus' own crucifixion, but the history of the early church is just littered with um, public um, executions with public moments of um, uh, of violence against believers. So um, this there's just resonance for the African American community um, in these moments. Uh, I mean, in these uh, texts and in in um, religion that, that makes it sort of just a fundamental piece of what an African American community was. So let's translate and transport all of that reality to, and now you have a sinner who has confessed his sins and is on the scaffold and is about to be killed by the state, by the white state, because they're really in this period, it's very white dominated. um, Police, judges, lawyers, lawmakers, um, the sheriff who's on uh, the scaffold, etc these are going to be white people. Um, so if you translate that religious um, devotion to that moment, um, you know it it becomes a political kind of statement uh, whether or not the ministers are overtly trying to make it one, it is one anyway. Having a black, people publicly pronouncing in front of black and white crowds the equality before God, um, the way in which all of us are sinners, the way in which it's only grace that allows any of us to reach heaven. Um, And, you know, this is a powerful claim of authority publicly. Um, And maybe the largest crowd that anybody in the crowd has ever been in before um, if it's in rural Georgia, where when else would you be in a crowd of 2,000 people? So there's a sort of power behind all of this that um, the religion plays a real role in, and a, and a sort of political role, whether or not it's intended. It's a challenge to um, the assumptions of white supremacy that Uh, There's another chapter um, that's about the sort of ideology of white supremacy that um, is looking down on black religion. I mean, the the claim that, well, blacks aren't really Christians, they're playing at being Christians, was was the attitude that a lot of white supremacists took. They don't really understand the moral ramifications of religion. For them, it's like a drunkenness Um, and... Uh, in that pointing at the sort of evangelical religion of uh, speaking in tongues and so forth, right? Um, have I talked past your question, or does no, that get no, at some of it?
1: That's very helpful. I, I'd actually like to to talk about that chapter that um, in which you you deeply dive into the racial uh, prejudices and the attitudes of the of the Reconstruction and then post Reconstruction South. I was I was wondering how those attitudes and, and the attitudes of Southern whites towards African-American culture and, and specifically religion, um, how, how those really work together to construct what you call in the book, the, the white supremacist punishment regime. Um, could you talk about that connection just a little bit more?
0: Yes, though it's going to be hard and I'm going to be sort of gripping my chair a little bit as I do it, <laughs> to be honest. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I say that not, not because the, um, the question is just a great one, not because of the question, but because I was very surprised. And in fact, my sister who read the book to help me proofread it at the end was surprised that it's not the, the most difficult part of the book for, for both she and for, I, uh, for me as well, uh, was not the execution stuff, which is hard, but also really interesting and seems very far away. From us now, it was reading these overt, outright, published in newspapers, published as books, statements of white supremacy and of racism in this period that was the most distressing for us. And so, it's it's a little bit of a, a hard thing to do, but let's let's just um, in in brief outline. Um, My philosophy of history is that we're trying to understand things. So you have to do some difficult stuff. Um, So I don't go back in the past and try to import my perspective. How can we avoid it to some degree or another? We're humans and so forth. Um, But I try to uh, work against that. What I want to do is to try to understand what's going on. And so I found with the African-American views of crime, of religion, of executions, of lynching, it was so easy for me to understand their perspective because I share it. Um, and their view that we have to go by the Constitution, we have to, that it is illegal to lynch, uh, say, and that um, you have to pay attention to the fact that these juries are white people who are, you know, Um, and the laws are made by white people, and the police are white people that um, are, in fact, uh, filling the jails with all of these African Americans and filling up the death row with African Americans and so forth. All of that makes sense coming from a perspective of 2022 and looking back. Where it was really difficult is to try to get to, well, how is it that white southerners also felt they were in the right and that they were justified and that they were they were you know um sanctified i mean uh, that's the wrong word but you know that they weren't doing something wrong they were doing something right and i i i fully believe that they believed that <laughs> i don't agree that they were doing the right thing but um i fully agree that and can understand that they had those beliefs, but it takes a tremendous amount of work as a historian, as a reader, um, to try to understand, well, how do you put yourself in a position where you can think um, that the death penalty should mostly be reserved for black people? Um, That lynching is okay, of course, is the sort of classic huge question um, uh, overarching this period. And uh, in my dive into these texts, the way that I would capture it is deep breath. Um, it, it all can make a sort of racist sense. If you understand that white, most white people or a lot of white people in the South in essence, believed that African-Americans weren't quite people. So when you have a, if you're on a farm and you have a horse that starts kicking everybody when they're trying to get bridled, that's not a useful animal anymore. And that's an animal that could kill someone. And so you put it down. You might be really sad about that. You might in fact have a pet name for that animal. You might like that animal, but you got to do what you got to do. Um, and I came across a, a quote about, um, uh, somebody in the South and this becomes, uh, the chapter title. Um, uh, you have to shoot the sheep killing dogs. And so that's just incredibly depressing. (laughs) Uh, to think about a large portion of people, and I raised the issue of echo chambers actually, something we talk about right now um, quite a lot, who are in these echo chambers of not hearing, not reading, not understanding the African-American perspective, but getting plenty of reinforcement of the white supremacist position in their worldview and in the press and in the publications. And um, that this, you know, what kind of punishment regime is appropriate for um, people who aren't quite people? Well, uh, the chain gang, you know, don't just, we have no money in the public coffers after the civil war. Um, You've got to make, if you're going to be imprisoning people, you got to make it pay. So you put them to work, convict labor, chain gang, that sort of a thing. Um, And the death penalty. And if the death penalty isn't doing its work, and this is the place where I make a connection to um, the extra legal hangings of the period, if the capital punishment regime that you set up is not doing its work of appropriately curbing the criminal class in the South, then you need something still more horrific, still more terrorizing um, in the form of lynching. And so I think um, the failure of public execution to actually be chastising is, I would not say the starting place, but it's one of the starting places that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about the rest of the racial violence of the um, late 19th century, including lynchings. That if I'm, you know, white people control the entire apparatus of justice in the South. They can punish whoever they want to, really. Um, Juries, everything. Um, But if the system includes the sanctification of people who have committed murder or rape uh, on the gallows with people singing hymns and saying hallelujah and I'll see you in heaven and so forth, well, that's maybe satisfying... You know in a narrow sense the judicial needs of an of a judicial regime but if your judicial regime is a part of a white supremacist regime it's not satisfying that
1: right hmm. does that make sense it does it does I, I i'm curious one of the recurring characters in your book is uh, a a man named thomas nelson page Um, Could you discuss him a little bit and mainly in the context of why he was trying to convince Northern whites to support the Southern racial regime? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going
0: to start there with a little bit of a sideline about process with this book, if that's okay. Um, and I'm not sure any listeners of the podcast would be into this inside baseball, but maybe it's a, um, a, a, a way of getting out how historians do their work. So um, I spent a lot of time on Thomas Nelson Page and especially on the responses to Thomas Nelson Page. And I saw it as um, a sort of window, a way of getting at what the debate was in this moment about race about punishment, about religion and, and all of that. And I chose him, um, because, uh, some of the figures who are more commonly referred to like, um, Vardaman or Pitchfork, Bill, Ben Tillman, or, um, the author of birth of a nation. Um, I mean, uh, not birth of a nation, um, uh, Thomas Dixon, um, uh, Uh, These are figures who have been very prominent in historians' view of um, the sort of ideology of white supremacy in this era. They were very sort of extreme and uh, are very shocking to us now in what they're willing to say publicly um, and so forth. And I I steered away from them in part because the historical profession has dealt with them very well, um, but in part because I have a, a suspicion that it's more important to look at what's average than what's extreme. Um, and Thomas Nelson Page seemed to me to be sort of an acceptable northern white person southerner. <laughs> so um, white people in the north um, might look askance or sort of down on Pitchfork Ben Tillman or Vardaman or or, or someone like that as sort of a roll your eyes, my gosh. Look at what they're saying, even though the white Northerners might be racist themselves, but they were agreeing with Thomas Nelson Page, and they were celebrating him. And he gets a big um, uh, obituary in 1920, is it 21, when he dies, as being sort of you know a, a prominent figure, and his books are reviewed in Northern things, um, journals and papers, very um, approvingly. And so by picking him, I, I, w- I was trying at least to get at not at who is the most extreme and in that way skew our understanding of how the debate was going, but somebody who was more moderate. But what I found was he's really extreme, <laughs> too, for, from our perspective. Um, and so that really says something. Um, but what's what's most interesting to me is the debate. And so you get in a number of moments, he comes out with a series of articles in 1904 and then another one in 1907. Um, uh, and the ones in 1904 uh, end up being a book called The Negro, The Southerner's Problem, um, collecting all of these essays and, and again makes a splash as a book. And you have all these African-American Prominent people, including Du Bois, um, uh, Mary Church Terrell, um, uh, trying to respond, and they're shut out, except for one article by Mary Church Terrell, which is a really interesting moment in 1904 when the same journal publishes a piece on lynching by Thomas Nelson Page, and then publishes her response to this piece on lynching, and in the same journal that was really an unheard of kind of thing to happen. And it doesn't happen again. She tries to get published over and over again to no avail. Du Bois tries to respond to Page to no avail um, and so forth. So he's a very interesting and important figure who in fact says things that are, from our perspective in 2022, tremendously disturbing. And yet he was seen as a moderate voice um, that everyone should read and so forth. Um, So uh, I talked past the why the North. Um, So African-Americans had a clear sense they needed Northern whites to be on their side. And so we're trying desperately to be a part of this conversation and Northern editors were basically shutting them out of publication. This is the echo chamber part. They were willing to publish white supremacist pieces from the South because they had a national audience and so much of their audience was perfectly fine north and south with hearing those sorts of sentiments but they were keeping out of press Uh, and in fact there's a letter to du bois who says this is a really fine piece and should be published somewhere but we can't publish it it would not be appropriate to publish this in our journal um and northern, I mean, southerners um, were, in essence, I mean, this is overstating it, of course, a little bit of hyperbole, uh, refighting the Civil War on a cultural plane in the late nineteenth century, writing fiction about the glories of the antebellum slave regime, where everybody was in their place and everybody was so happy. Unlike now, look at all the conflict now, um, and writing essays talking about the horrors of Reconstruction and um, how, what a mistake it was for Northerners to take the um, side of African-Americans and so forth. Um, in 1907, a Richmond professor, Samuel Mitchell, wrote a triumphant piece about the triumph of Southern values, um, in which he's saying, Northern papers are taking our view now um, and in essence, claiming victory in the cultural battle of, um, defining how race should be seen in America. Um, so, um, I could say more, but, um, I, I want to check in and make sure that I'm answering the question that you're, you're asking.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, incredibly helpful. Um. One of your chapters uh, dives into to uh, the the quantitative data on executions in the south I'd love to talk about that for just a second. Um, you write on page uh, eighty three uh, you say that the data you found um, quote, reveals that our view of the South has generally misplaced capital punishment within the history of the Jim Crow police state. Uh, you've talked a little bit ab- about that misplacement already, but I'm curious ab- uh, about what the numbers do tell us. What, what did you find in that chapter?
0: Uh, the num- first of all, the numbers are in flux a little bit, and that might seem weird um, to historians even, much less to a wider, um, wider reading public. Um, And that is because uh, executions before the early 20th century in the South were local, not state run. So let me describe that. Um, Once Virginia in 1908 uh, decides on a mode of execution that is electrocution, well, you need a generator. And that means you need to centralize something where you've got electricity and you've got a generator. And that means you're gonna have executions be in a penitentiary and they chose the one in Richmond. And so that is centralizing the process. And from that point on, we can count executions in Virginia very accurately because it's centralized. All of the executions in American history, um, in the South, rather, before 1908, um, and it's every state after that has a different date of when they centralize. Um, but the first one to centralize is, is Virginia in 1908. Um, every execution was instead a local affair. And so it would be a sheriff of a county uh, hanging someone maybe for the first time. Most executions are a sheriff executing somebody for the first time he's ever done it. There's 1,200 counties, you know, and the 60 year period that I'm looking at. There are going to be, I don't know, 15, 10 different sheriffs in these different counties and, you know, divide up the executions of the South. Um, You do have some that are experienced that have more than one that they do, but it's a, it's a, in, in just personnel terms, this is a very weird thing before you centralize. And one thing that that means is that even the records that we have, state records are not clear. Um, about all of the executions before 1908, and the further back you go, the harder it is to find executions. So there's this database; it's called the SP file. And M-S-S-B, um started counting up all of the executions in American history, colonial period to the present. Um, a hugely important, helpful database that is wrong all over the place. <laughs> so, so it's a great starting place, but you know, it's a flawed piece. So why are things in flux? Well, there are other scholars and in particular, um, you have uh, uh, Hearn and Laska. Um, and so let me uh, make sure I get the states right of the ones that they have already done. Um, so it's Daniel Hearn and Lewis Lasca. And in terms of the South, Georgia, Kentucky, North and South Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee have gotten these new lists by modern scholars who have just poured through the records and they have found so many more executions than the SP file had. And so that's half of the South, that's six of the 12 states that I look at that have these new really good databases of executions, um, lists of executions rather. Um, and so it's in flux. And so in the coming years as Texas in particular, I'm, I'm hoping uh, that somebody is looking at Texas and trying to do this because that is where more executions than just about anywhere in American history um, have taken place. Uh, we'll get a changed understanding of the sort of patterns of lynching. So when I'm looking at the patterns in the numbers, I tend to use only those ones that are from those modern lists that are really much better data. Um, and so a lot of my data is based on the best stuff that we can know right now. And it's from those six states, not from the 12 states of the South. Um so that's a lot of background and I feel like in in that case I talked past your question. Can you reframe it?
1: Yeah, so what, what, basically what do the numbers say? You you've oh. sort of you yeah, you've noted how um, you know historians have, have generally sort of misplaced capital punishment uh, within uh, the history of Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South. So what, how how do the numbers sort of help us reframe what the, the correct role uh, for us to understand is. Right. So I really talked
0: past that question because I didn't address that at all.
1: <laughs> well, the, <laughs> so. b- the background's very helpful, though. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that will be fascinating for many of our listeners. So,
0: um, so I, uh, there are two things there, I think, that I would say. One is that the general way that we've thought about it is that executions rose as lynchings fell. That's what, um, if you look into the scholarship uh, and uh, the way in which people have just sort of captured what's going on, that's what most people have said. Um, and as, you know, in, in gross numbers, you know, um, just just counting them up, there's a way in which that makes sense. Um, however, um, just counting things up is really not the right way to deal with anything over time or looking at different geographical Spaces. By that I mean, um, you can absolutely say New York City has more murders than Ithaca, New York. But that doesn't really mean anything because New York City is millions and millions of people and Ithaca, New York is 30,000 people. So you're not really actually saying anything when you're talking in those kinds of terms, just counting. And the U.S. population and the population of the South doubles and then doubles again. So of course, there are going to be more crimes. There are going to be more capital crimes. And so, you know, what you need to do is is solve for population to be able to get an understanding of whether this particular thing, in this case, capital punishment, is in fact rising over time, or is it falling over time, in proportion to the population that you're measuring. And so um, there, uh, the sort of standard idea that lynchings fell after the 1890s um, falling steeply until there are very few by the 1930s and 40s and so forth. But uh, uh, executions rose. That's not true. So in gross numbers, it is slightly true. <laughs> there are a little bit more executions in, say, the 1930s or 1920s than in the 1890s. But in terms of the size of the population, it is clear that the 1880s and 1890s is the high point of of executions in the post-Civil War South and that executions are declining after that as lynchings are declining. And so that part I'm emphasizing there with my voice um, because that's the part that's sort of surprising when you look closely at these numbers. Um, There is no explanation for lynching that it's in some way taking the place. Of executions. Executions are falling as lynchings are falling. Executions were high when lynching numbers were high. And so that's an important way in which we need to sort of rejigger how we're thinking about the role of um, legal hangings in the South in, um, in uh, this the sort of uh, judicial regime.
1: Hmm. And I'm sure those, you know, those findings will continue to sort of change and evolve as more data becomes available.
0: Yes, although there is a good reason to say it's only going to exaggerate further the data that we've got. Um, I'm I'm a little bit getting into the weeds, but I'll do it very briefly um, because of the um, the firm numbers that we've got after each state moves to um, uh, state controlled execution, the ones that we have yet to find are almost all going to be 19th century ones, not early 20th century ones. So it's probably going to exaggerate still further the, um, the expanse of the, uh, or the reach of, uh, capital punishment uh, rather than not. The other thing that I would say just about numbers is, is the, um, proportion that is African-American compared to white. Um, The African-American population of the South in 1900 is about 35%. Um, Throughout this period, the percentage of those who are um, on death row or being executed is more like 85%. Um, And so the ways in which this is a form of punishment that is not exclusively African-American but is very disproportionately used against African Americans is just quite a clear trend.
1: Well, one of the big themes, themes of your book that um, I, I think is really important to hit on is the, the shift from public executions to, to private. Um, could you explain a bit more about why this shift began to happen, uh, but also why it's so difficult to pinpoint an exact transition in many places? I, think, I thought that was an interesting uh, bit in the book.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, that is sort of, uh, that's the last chapter. It's the sort of um, clinching kind of how did this in fact shift to a more modern um, regime of private execution. And ultimately in that chapter is about electrocution as well. Um, so, the the general story in the scholarship uh, was looking at this transition in the North. And there's a really great book by Louis Massour about um, this transition that I've, I've admired and, and that I, I saw as my sort of... Um, I was looking at how the South was, um, was doing the same sort of thing as how I started off thinking. Um, and his, uh, his his argument, and the argument that you find in the scholarship in, in most places, is this: this transition from public execution to private is a part of a larger regime of changes that um, that comes with modernization, that comes with a modern, urban, and especially middle class centered um, bourgeois. Uh, vision of a state's role um, and wanting more civility in the actions of the state. And so the thing that I came into the project thinking that I was going to be pursuing is how much does this really fit with the South? And I guess I am pursuing that, but the answer is not much. Um, so um, uh, the arguments in, um, in in the scholarship in terms of the North and, and otherwise were that that it creates more crime in these crowds that are boisterous and there's so much drinking and um, carousing that it is itself disorder that um, and the the focus on death and the crime just belittles the moral sense of the people who are watching and we need in fact this to happen in a different way. And you find some of those rationales in the South, People, it's not that that's not something that's said, But much more prominent is in fact a different argument that I think is tied in to the religious nature of black authority on the scaffold that you find in the South. And that is a critique of public executions that it valorizes the criminal, that it sets them on high, makes them a subject of admiration, um, and it leads people to think that, what is the phrase that um, one editorialist used? that the, gall- uh, that the, um, that the uh, gallows was a, a shortcut to heaven, um, and uh, all sorts of discussion of disorder in the South, but it seemed to me um, that as much as anything, they weren't talking about drinking, fighting, brawling, that kind of disorder. But instead, the disorder of having African-Americans publicly proclaiming they're being saved and having especially black crowds being loud and boisterous in singing and maybe calling out and, you know, like at a camp meeting in the evangelical sort of tradition. Um, and that sort of disorder was what they were being uh, what they were calling out. And definitely there are arguments in uh, both um, the debates in legislatures, but especially as they're amplified in editorials, as state by state they pass these laws to make executions behind walls and ultimately to turn to electrocution in the bowels of a penitentiary. Um, The arguments that this privacy, this... um, solemnity, this mystery, will in fact cow the underclass better than the um, holiday air of the revivals that the public executions were. Um, And so state by state, all 12 of them uh, decide at some point or another to make um, executions private but it's a very mixed picture so you have a, a state passing a law no longer can um, uh, executions be in public well everybody was used to it everybody is is um, uh the norm is to have these things in um, in public and the sheriff is torn in a given county between what the people want and what the law says you're supposed to do Um, And so in places where they already have jail walls, say Richmond, Virginia, where they're, you know, a city, um, Savannah, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, um, you've already got a jail wall, you build the thing inside there. And so okay, we've got private execution now. But in a county, a poor county somewhere, where the jail is basically a room off the courthouse, there is no wall, you'd have to build a wall. In a poor count, you know, they continued to have public executions or to have, quote, unquote, walls. (laughs) Um, We're going to put a a stretch of canvas around the bottom of a gallows so that everything happens like normal on the top of the gallows. The, you know, uh, everybody's watching. You have the religious service and everything. And then the condemned drops out of view. Um, so you have these sort of pseudo public private kinds of arrangements. So it's really hard when we think of private, we think of, well, there are just a few witnesses and that's it. When you see private in newspapers in the period, all it means is there was some kind of barrier involved, but it doesn't mean that it was private. Like we think of private being. In fact, I start the, um, the book, the introduction, with an, an example which it says, the execution was in private and took place in the jail yard in the presence of several hundred witnesses. <laughs> so, and then there are others that are on top of the walls and then trees all around looking over from buildings and all of that. Um, so it's a very difficult thing, actually. You don't just go to the laws and say, okay, and this year things became private. That's not true. Uh, you can find lots of public executions after all of those dates. Hmm.
1: That is a really interesting. Um, so I, I just have really one kind of last question for you. you you end the book with, um, with with what I thought was really a challenging personal reflection on on this uh, history's relevance or otherness, uh, sort of to the to the challenges that we face in our own times, I'm just kind of wondering how, how do you hope uh, historians or general readers will uh, accept your book? What, what what do you really hope that they will will take away from it? On a subject like this.
0: Um I have concerns that people will just be focused on the horror of it, um, and not look past it to uh, the what I think is a real rich collection of issues that have to do with so many different sides of how life is lived. I mean, religion is woven through this book and race is wrote, gender is woven through this book. Changes in the nature of the law is woven through this book. Those are really important issues that I try to weave together in ways that are illuminating in uh, the the issues of the day and I hope novel new ways that are helpful. Um, and at its heart, what I hope a general reader would take away from it is how, what is what is the line, history doesn't repeat itself, but it echoes, that there are echoes of today's issues with echo chambers, I'm using the word again, um, But uh, with, you know, what is the role of religion in public life? It's not like that's not an issue now. Um, Issues of race. I mean, good Lord, race and justice. We have been living through a time of reckoning in terms of that. And so this builds something of a longer history of people who are wrestling with this issue, with these issues in their time. And so I think that's useful in seeing how um, uh, throughout our past, these have been things that we have struggled with. But um, I am absolutely very much allergic to the idea of seeing the past as teaching us things never change. They do, they change radically. And so in those last couple of pages there that you were referencing where i do uh, take a stab at, at um, uh, playing with what ways does this reflect on our own moment i want to make sure people keep in mind there were no public defenders and then there were you know capital punishment has declined radically in just in the last 20 years the first state Um, in the South to ever end capital punishment, did it last year. You know, we aren't living in the 1890s, but the 1890s can teach us something about religion and public life, something about the power of the state, and certainly about the dangers of echo chambers and um, racial divisions Um, in, in terms of um, justice.
1: Mm. Well, there definitely is much more we could talk about, but I want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I I think your book is, is just such an interesting and, and I think important book. Uh, and I, I do hope our listeners will take the chance to, to get a copy and to learn something about this, uh, this fascinating uh, history. If readers do want to find you um, either online or just out in the world, what's the, what's the best place for them to do that at?
0: In managing my own sanity in today's crazy world, I'm really not on most uh, social media platforms. And so the best way to reach me is uh, looking me up uh, at Ithaca College. I have a faculty webpage and an email uh, where I can be reached, and you can get more information on the, uh, the two books that I have published um, with links from those pages.
1: Excellent. Well, Dr. Trotty is the author of The End of Public Execution, Race, Religion, and Punishment in the American South. It was published in 2022 by the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, It's available on the UNC Press website, Amazon.com, other fine book retailers. Uh, Also, Dr. Trotty, thank you so much for uh, for being our guest today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for those questions. And I, I was happy to join you. And listeners, please make sure to subscribe to our new Books in History podcast channel wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes come out daily. Thanks for listening and happy reading.